0: Hi, everyone. In this episode, I interview Greg Bennett about conversational assistance in linguistics. I want to give a big shout out to Greg again for doing this. So thank you so much. And without further ado, let's get into it. All right. Cool. So can you give me a brief overview of conversational assistance and what it entails?
1: Sure. Um, I think conversational assistance is kind of a broad umbrella for any kind of um, technology that tries to engage a user, a human user in conversation. Um, And I think we have to sort of start with a definition of conversation itself in order to sort of really define that. So for the purposes of what I'm talking about, I define conversation as an exchange of language between two or more participants taking turns. Um, so there has to be language that goes back and forth. And if only one participant in the interaction is talking, it's not a conversation. Um, and as those participants take turns in a conversation, they do, sort, do so towards some kind of goal. So it's not that they're just sort of talking in circles or talking about stuff, but that they're actually doing things. Um, and the goal could be social it could be transactional it could have to do with a relationship so it could be ordering a cup of coffee it could be um you know offering a cup of coffee to show that you know you're you're close to that person or want to get close to them it could be organizing a group around a particular kind of coffee that we all really enjoy all of those things are doing things um, in the conversation and i would say that Conversational assistants are really that umbrella of technologies that can have more, I would say, at least more than two turns of conversation that, or, you know, two turns exchanges of language in order to move closer toward a given goal. Um, There are other technologies out there where it's really more like you don't go beyond maybe one or two turns in that. I kind of look at it as a glorified notifications tray where it's like, this thing is talking at me and sure I can say things to it, but it's not reacting to the things that I'm saying. Um, Really. It's about, again, like that turn-taking. So conversational assistance, turn-taking, I think within that realm, you have things like all of the different sort of modalities of conversation. So voice assistance, chat assistance, multimodal assistance, where there's some sort of um, hybrid of voice and chats, Um, there could also be assistance, conversational assistance where there's like a virtual avatar. So like sometimes they have a human body, which I think is kind of weird. Um, sometimes they don't, uh, where it's like, um, kind of like a cartoonish or character like avatar. So I, I used to live in Japan. So there's a lot of, uh, things like that there, um, where maybe you're talking to a talking donut, um, and it's not a human and that's fine. Um. But the, the real sort of, I think, like common denominator there is the fact that you can, you can go deep. You can take two or more turns continuing to sort of go down a path of conversation toward a given goal, rather than just taking maybe one discrete turn here and there about different topics.
0: Um, and I saw in your work, uh, Conversational Style Beyond the Nuts and Bolts of Conversation um, you talk about like highly considerate and high involvement speaking, mm-hmm. um, and I was wondering if you could tell me a little more a little more about what that means.
1: Sure. So, high considerate and high involvement are actually two. That's all actually Deborah Tannen's work, and I just referenced it in my mind to kind of introduce folks to ways of conceptualizing conversational style. Um, so Deborah Tannen discovered in her um, doctoral work on conversational style that there were in the subjects who she was observing and analyzing, there were these two really dominant emergent styles among the group of people um, she analyzed. And so in her study, what she did was she had participants um, sit around a, a dinner table at Thanksgiving and she put a tape recorder in the middle and just recorded the conversation. And there were folks from California, uh, the Bay Area, um, maybe someone also from Southern California, folks from New York City, And then I believe one person also from Canada. And what emerged was that the folks from California seemed to give off. uh, They they certainly talked a lot less than the ones from New York, but also that they would almost back away from the interaction when the New Yorkers would start talking. And what she found was that the New Yorkers expressed a high involvement style whereby if, if I'm talking... and you want to show me that this is an engaging conversation, you should be talking at the same time as me, that our conversation should overlap. In the high considerateness speakers, they practice conversation in such a way where if you're talking at the same time as me, it's a power move. And you're trying to steal the conversational floor and only one voice should be heard at a time in conversation. So when you take those two kinds of speakers and put them together, they drive each other apart because, The one from uh, California who's high considerateness would be like, all right, well, you're talking now and I can't get a word in edgewise. The one who's high involvement from New York would say, well, you're talking right now and or you're not talking right now, so you must be bored. Um, And essentially, that's sort of how they drive each other apart.
0: Yeah. Um, and I I know you also referenced um, contextualization cues. um, Yeah kind of how would you like get an AI to interpret and figure out a user's contextualization cues and then reciprocate that accordingly?
1: That's the million dollar question. Um, and you're kind of like tapping into what I hope, you know, the future of the work that I'm doing in conversation design. So for context, contextualization cues are essentially, um, any of that sort of above the word layer, um, or above the semantic meaning layer, um, of sort of context and conversation so that could be intonation like if I if I'm saying um, oh I'm good today versus oh, I'm good today where the distinction between the two of them is that in the second one we have a little bit longer of a pause we have that following intonation you can see on my face the you know the eyebrows, the mouth, um, all of that sort of gives that additional context to, the utterance that even though semantically they mean the same thing, the second one is intended to convey, actually, I'm not okay. Um, or whatever. Um, and so all of you, we can, the way that sort of gets realized in chat is like things like spelling variations, punctuation, variation, um, emoticons, emojis, what have you. Um, so in terms of how, uh, I guess AI could recognize contextualization cues would be we'd have to build a corpus. Um, we'd have to, and I think it really depends on the, the ch- I guess, the modality that we're trying to interact with. There's a lot more research around contextualization cues in voice than there are in chat. Um, so I think on the one hand, the research would be, would make it easier to train a model perhaps Um, on contextualization cues with voice, but the challenge there would be that you have to deal with the ASR, the automated speech recognition piece, where if your ASR model isn't uh, tuned very accurately, then essentially you could run into an issue where it's misinterpreting what's being said and you can't even get to the contextualization cue piece because it's just not getting the full input. Um, So, there's that piece with with text. I don't think there there has been some research. I think on contextualization cues, but not as many corpora that I can think of, where we could just download and annotate it. Um, I tend to go to the linguistics sorry the linguistic data consortium uh, through University of Pennsylvania to get um, language corpora, um, and I haven't found anything in there that has um, sort of this chat based text based um, corpus that we could. would just it would require a lot of effort for us to systematically tag it um so it's the kind of thing where like at the corporate level um because our timelines move really quickly i don't know that if i that i'd have the time to be able to do that right away um but a doctoral student could so if any doctoral students are thinking about it please do and let me know because um i'd like to reference that work but um i think from that perspective you would probably need to tag a corpus of contextualization cues, such as emojis and spelling variations, et cetera, um, for a given segment of users. Because it's not like like we were saying earlier, like it's not going to be the same across all populations. And then within that given segment of users, then you would train a model to interpret that. um, And that's the recognition piece. The production piece would then be, um, I guess you would have to recognize the kinds of contextualization cues that user uses in particular, and then you would have to adjust the conversation designs such that it replicated those similar contextualization cues. So let's say the user, if we're going to talk about chat, let's say that the user uses, um, like they like to repeat letters in order to emphasize something like yay with like 20 y's or whatever. Um, and if the chat bot wants to also convey enthusiasm and do it in the way that the user does it, then we'd have to adjust the conversation design dynamically to then also do that reduplication of letters. Um, That I think is a ways away, but I think that would be incredibly uh, powerful for the future of conversation design.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of like along with recognition, um, Mm -hmm. I know this is also kind of a hard one, but how does like AI and conversational assistance detect sarcasm and um, like what are the
1: (laughs) Okay um I don't think it can yet with the way that the com- the way that the technology currently exists and that's because I think sarcasm is something that you have to triangulate across multiple contextualization cues so it's tied to the previous question that you were talking about in that let's say for voice you'd have to really be able to interpret that intonational curve and we'd need a whole corpus of utterances that show that intonational curve. Um, And even then, that's not, that's not all there is, because even if we've got the corpus of the intonational curve, that the actual like lexical components of of the utterance could be different. We'd have that sort of lexical variation there. So, um, uh, I'm I'm struggling to come up with an example that I wouldn't have to explain for a while, but like, um, sarcasm, sarcasm, like, um, if I wanted to say like, oh, I really love that presentation, or didn't they do a great job, Um, both of those two utterances could refer to the same instance or same event that they're commenting on but lexically are are completely different. Um, So didn't they do a great job versus I really love that presentation. They don't share any kind of similarity in terms of how the utterance is constructed. The only thing that they share is that intonational curve. And so I think that there'd be a challenge there in terms of, well, we've got the intonational curve part down, but do we even recognize this utterance at the syntactic or semantic level as one that we would even consider to be sarcastic. Um, I think that there's there's a challenge there in terms of triangulating the semantics, the syntax and the prosody um, in order to be able to deduce sarcasm. So um, you're thinking in the right direction and that's like absolutely the future of where it should go. Um, I don't know exactly how we would do it yet.
0: Um, yeah, and I know a lot of these things are you're hoping to happen soon. Um, and so if you kind of had like a crystal ball, what would your predictions be around the future of conversational assistance? Um, and
1: um, yeah,
0: what issues, Sorry? Do you... um, kind of like along with that. Yeah. Just what issues, um, do you think may arise?
1: Okay. Um, so If I had a crystal ball, it wouldn't see too far into the future, (laughs) just because my predictions, I think, are probably a little bit more local. Like I think what you were asking around contextualization cues and sarcasm is much farther away than language varieties um, and incorporating more diversity in our language models. Um, And so that's really where I see, in terms of, I would say, the next couple of years, that's where things will probably rotate. Um, Whoever, whichever sort of company or entity gets gets to a more A linguistically diverse set of data first will be the one to really lead the pack in terms of well we don't just cater to this one group of people we cater to this many groups of people Um, and i think that the challenges with that that will arise with that is that at first there will be everyone who's trying to go and get those data and um make their models more diverse but the challenge there will really be around equity so if you're targeting traditionally underrepresented minorities um, to build these models, um, what are they getting out of it? Like, it's great that they'll be able to get the product, but do they even have the money to pay for it? And do they even have any kind of stake or um, I guess, relationship with the actual technology that's being built? And so I think that the, and this is actually something that I think the sociolinguistic community still struggles with. Traditionally, sociolinguists will just go into a community observe, listen, collect the data they need, and they pay their participants and they get out. Um, But how does that really give back to the community from which you've taken those data? And so I think that that will really be, I would say within the next two to five years, the thing that we will focus on as a community. Okay, we'll probably start out developing ways to obtain the data, and then we'll need to think through thresholds in terms of what actually makes it diverse. And as we're doing that, There will be this parallel track around how are we doing it in a way that's fair to these communities
0: yeah and kind of adding on to that um what are some more like ethical considerations about implementing conversational assistance
1: i think the in terms of the ethics around it my mind always goes to um language and society language and identity um so who are we not including who are we forgetting? because even if I were to target say African American vernacular English, Chicano English and Southern English, there's still so many different variants of English here in the United States alone that I'm not including in that initial data set. Um, and so I think there's there's a big piece on the ethical side to think through what is that threshold of acceptance when we talk about diversity um, and particularly as we broaden out to other countries, I mean, you know we here in the US we would call it british english but there're still so many varieties of english in britain than just one british english um countries you know don't necessarily have one variety that is the same everywhere um and so i think that scaling to that is going to be a big challenge and thinking through you know we're not going to be able to get everybody at once um and we're not going to be able to get all varieties at once so how do we prioritize what are our thresholds and how do we Um, sort of mitigate for the ones who aren't included right away and remember the ones who are not included and get them eventually or later.
0: Yeah. And, um, kind of just wrapping up, is there any like final touches you'd like to add on or anything that we haven't gone over that you think is important for conversational assistance, um, or just linguistics as a whole?
1: Um, I guess the one thing that I haven't touched on really very much is around gender and gender identity. Um, So there's a hot debate in the conversational AI and conversation design communities right now around whether or not a bot should have a gender identity. And there are some who who vehemently believe that it should um, because there's research that's been shown that if you don't give the bot a gender, that users will. Um, And then there's another part of the community um, that thinks what does gender really get us for the experience when the bot itself is not an organic being? It's not a, it's not a human. It's not an animal. It's, it does not have gender. So, and I'm of the latter group. um, I always wonder what does gender identity really get you? Like if we're thinking about things like um, a voice experience, for example, and you want the voice assistant to be female, um, does that really just mean high pitch and um, there was a ling- there's a yeah, there was a linguist uh, by the name of John O'Hala who uh, was a professor at Berkeley and did a study in I want to say the 60s or 70s around the ecology of sounds in nature, and he found that essentially that part of the reason why we associate smiling and high pitch with um, like friendliness or approachability is because that high pitch is in nature likely emanates from a small sound source and is therefore not threatening to us as humans because we're larger than that. Um, And with deep, uh, or sorry, with low pitch, it likely comes from a big sound source, like a gorilla or an elephant or something. And as a human, we're not sizably a match for that. And therefore it feels authoritative or threatening. And that aspect of it is the part that concerns me the most. Are we picking a female gender identity for this assistant, because we want it to be approachable, which is based on the assumption that females are therefore physically smaller in relation to us or physically smaller than males. That I think is what the problem is rather we should be thinking of, do we want a high pitch or a low pitch? Um, It doesn't really matter if it's male or female, because you could very well have someone who identifies as male who has a high pitched voice or someone who identifies as female who has a low pitched voice. Um, and so that I think is probably the only thing that I'd like to sort of address is I'm like, let's throw out the gender identity piece and focus strictly on the pitch and what it is that we want to affect in the user experience.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think this is kind of the end. So thank you so much for, um, again, coming on and talking about this. It was really informative. Of course, it's
1: my pleasure. And thanks for your questions. These are really, these are really great.
0: that wraps up this podcast and i want to thank everybody for listening and especially greg bennett once again for doing this i learned a lot and i hope you all did too thank you everybody see you next time